But hey, my name's Josh DeCook. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at Meritage Drive Reform Church. And this morning, I have the opportunity to continue along in our series called Living on God's Time. Now, we've tracked all the way from the book of Genesis through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Last week, we talked about Judges. And this week, we're going to talk, or last week, we talked about Joshua, sorry. This week, we're going to jump into the books of Judges and Ruth. So let's start with a bit of context this morning to kick off. Now, the book of Judges comes to us on the heels of the book of Joshua. And at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua is reminding the Israelites, he's calling them to be faithful to the covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And in doing this, and in obeying those commands, they will show the other nations what God is truly like. So then we get into the book of Judges, and the first thing that happens, Joshua dies. And when Joshua dies the entire story takes a very severe spiral downward because Israel is completely unable to do what they've been called to do. Israel fails miserably at what they've been asked to remain in the covenant with God. So it's interesting because these, the book's name is actually called Judges, and we think of Judges kind of as the Judges that we see today, but really the Judges are more like the tribal rulers Okay, so instead of judges as we see them, think of tribal rulers or chieftains who God has raised up to deliver his people. Now, I'm not going to dive too deeply into the book of Judges because, quite honestly, the book of Judges gets very, um, <laughs> it's a nice way to put this, violent, and it's, it's kind of messed up, if that's, can everybody get on board with that? It's, it's really kind of messed up in terms of the things that take place in the book. So we're not going to dive too deeply into it, but understand that the book generates hope in the failure, because what happens is the Israelites are supposed to drive out the Canaanites from the promised land. They don't do that. And the reason they're supposed to drive out the Canaanites is because the Canaanites are so morally corrupt that God does not want his people taking on their practices. Well, instead of driving them out, they actually come in and move in alongside them. So they adopt their cultural and moral beliefs, they adopt their religious practices, and they begin worshiping other gods like the Canaanites do. Now, this is obviously a problem, and in the book of Judges, this spans a period of about 200 years. So that's where the people of God have come from, and that's where they are now in the book of Judges. Now, the ultimate judge, if you will, in this book is actually Yahweh. Yahweh is the Hebrew name for God. And the reason he is the ultimate judge is because he is the one that has delivered the people into the hands of their enemies. He is the one who raises up these tribal leaders to lead them out of this, to deliver them from it. And he's the one who empowers these tribal rulers through his spirit to deliver his people from their enemies. Now, unfortunately, however, the judges that he empowers to do this are actually terrible people. So what happens is when he raises up a judge and they deliver the people, the judge's moral corruption, the judge's character flaws come out, and the people spiral right back down to where they started from, which has God then raising up a new judge. How many of you know the story of Samson? Samson wasn't really the best quality individual, was he? But Samson is one of the judges in the book of Judges. He's one of the tribal rulers that God raised up. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to use the story of Judges as a springboard into the story of the book of Ruth, because the book of Ruth presents a much different story than Judges. Ruth invites us to reflect on the question of how is God active and involved in the daily joys and struggles of our lives. It does it through three main characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Now, while it's set in the same period as Judges, okay, it sets the stage for the hope and the deliverance that is 
to come. So we're going to focus our attention this morning on the last verse of the book of Judges. So if you have your Bibles with me, open to Judges 21, verse 25. And we're going to take that all the way through Ruth chapter 1, verse 22. And we'll use that as a springboard into the rest of the book. Or you can follow along with me if you'd much rather do that. So here we go. The last verse in the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And now starting the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where they had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and they said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you want to come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than you. Because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn my back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. So if you remember, we started in the book of Ruth, but at the end of Judges, and what the first sentence in Ruth tells us is that this is the time when the judges ruled. So this is reminding us that during the story of Ruth, there is a lot of darkness and icky stuff going on. 
Now the first verse points back to the end of the book of Judges that says Israel had no king and everyone was doing as they saw fit. That sets the stage for what's happening around these two. Now we're also told that there's a famine in the land, so a man named Elimelech and his two sons, his wife Naomi, travel from Bethlehem to Moab. Now Moab just so happens to be one of the ancient enemies of Israel. Tragedy then strikes Naomi as her husband passes away. Ten years later, her two sons pass away, and now she's left alone with her two daughters-in-law named Ruth and Orpah in a foreign country. Verse 6, however, tells us that Naomi had heard that the Lord had come to the aid of his people in Bethlehem by providing food for them, so Naomi makes a decision. She tells her new daughters-in-law she's moving home. She's leaving Moab, she's going back to Bethlehem. You see, because Naomi knows that the life of an unmed, unwed, foreign immigrant widow is going to be very, very difficult. So she urges the women to stay behind. And of course, they both resist initially, telling her they're going to go back to their people. But in verse 11, Naomi pushes back, saying that she has nothing left. She is empty. And she goes a step further, saying, It is more bitter for me than you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. So Orpah agrees to this request. She kisses Naomi and says goodbye, but Ruth makes the decision to stay. And Naomi tries to convince her otherwise, but Ruth launches into one of the most beautifully worded pieces of loyalty in the Old Testament when she says, do not urge me to leave you or turn my back to you. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you die, I will die. And where you, who is your God will be my God. How's Naomi going to say no after that, right? Because Naomi knows full well that Ruth is making a decision and she knows what she's getting into. Because see, for, to travel from Moab back to Bethlehem wasn't a quick jaunt across the parking lot, right? This is a 30-mile journey around the Dead Sea. So if my fist is the Dead Sea, okay? We have Mo... Hold on a second. Moab is... Moab. Moab's over here, okay? So if Moab's over here, they have to travel up and around the Dead Sea, cross the Jordan River, which leads into the Dead Sea, then come back down here to Bethlehem, okay? So it's not just straight across. They're going up and around. The terrain is not the most friendly, okay? They estimate that this is roughly a 30 to 40 mile journey. Now, with the terrain being what it was, they estimate it would take them about seven to 10 days to make this trip. Now, remember, this is in the time when the judges ruled. So for two widowed women to be making a seven to ten day journey in the wilderness was incredibly dangerous. There's not hotels to stop and stay at. There's not shelter built for them. There's no protection for them. They are out in the elements against all odds. So when Naomi stops trying to urge Ruth to stay, she knows that Ruth knows exactly what she's getting into. So the two continue on until they arrive in Bethlehem. And when they get to Bethlehem, the whole town is stirred because they remember this woman, Naomi. They're like, she's back, she's returned. And they're excited and they say, can this be Naomi? But Naomi responds not by saying, hey, how you doing? It's been a long time, good to see you all. Naomi responds saying, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but now I've returned empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. 
The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You see how broken and beaten she is by this point in time? She left Bethlehem full. She comes back completely empty. Because Naomi is trying to do what a lot of us try to do. She's trying to push people away. In her mind, only tragedy and misfortune follow her. So why should someone hitch their wagon to her when all that follows her is chaos? She tried and succeeded to push away Orpah. She tried and almost succeeded to push away Ruth. And now she's pushing away everyone who might have known her before by changing her name and saying, no, 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 I'm not that woman that you used to know. I am now Mara. Get away from me. Has anyone else in the room felt this way at a certain point in their life? Has anyone else felt the urge to push people away? Maybe phrases such as, the Lord's hand is turned against me. The Almighty has made my life bitter. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Do those feelings and those phrases resonate with anybody? Because they make me incredibly uncomfortable because I resonate with them more than I like to share because it brings me back to when I was 12 years old and my parents told me those three lovely words that every child loves to hear. We are moving. I remember hearing those words and I ran to my bedroom, slammed the door, and I just bawled because I was so angry. I was so frustrated. I was so confused. How could my parents be doing this to me? How could God be doing this to me? After all, my dad was a pastor, right? So my dad left his job as a pastor to become a church planner. He's clearly doing God's work. Hey, thanks God for making this move. So God's to blame for this. Everything in my life made sense, but now it's been taken. It's been completely flipped upside down. Why exactly is this happening to me? So we moved, and I'm sure I was <laughs> less than fun to be around. The only upside I could see from this is that my parents had promised that if we ever moved, because they never thought we would move, we would get a puppy, right? That's Parents don't ever promise to give your kids a puppy if you move, because, yeah. They promised to get me a puppy. And they had this whole excuse about our house in Bismarck that we couldn't get a puppy because the, the yard was weirdly shaped and there was no backyard. And I'm like, you just don't want a dog. We moved. We got a puppy. So that stemmed the tide for a little bit. It's like, hey, th maybe this is okay. But then I hit the age of 13. And at 13, I began dealing with what we love to call anxiety and depression issues. And right back again, I became frustrated with my parents. I became frustrated with God. Because you see, I didn't have this before we moved. I didn't have anxiety and depression before we moved. Life was perfect there. Life was great. Everything made sense. But then you move me here, and look what happens. So I did exactly what Naomi tried to do. I pushed everyone away I could. So if the friends I had made in that first year would call me, right? They'd call, and I'd pick up the phone and be like, hello, and they're like, hey, you want to come outside and play? I'm like, uh, let me ask my parents. So I'd go upstairs to where my parents were, have the phone like this, and I'd be like, hey, mom and dad, can I go play with Timmy? And as I'm saying this, I'm shaking my head. Because I wanted them to say no. So then my parents would be like, no, sorry, he can't. They'd be like, hey, sorry, I can't play. Hang up the phone, right? You see, I was so terrified to leave my house because my house represented safety. So I pushed everyone and everything away because that represented possible danger. 
I couldn't possibly leave my house because what if I would have a panic attack? What if somebody else would see that? So I pushed everyone and everything away. I began avoiding everything to keep myself safe. And I justified this by saying, all I'm doing is putting in place safeguards to keep me from having a panic attack, right? But let's be honest. I was simply running away from having to deal with the issue at hand. So I developed a pattern in my life of avoiding things that were difficult, of blaming other people, of wanting other people to fix it for me, as opposed to standing on my own two feet and saying, I can do this. You see, but then my fear transitioned back to anger because I was convinced that God was to blame. Because wasn't it enough for us to move? But then you throw on this anxiety and depression stuff, and I was convinced that not only was this God's fault, but God was actually out to get me. Why did God do this to me? Why did God not like me? Why had God brought this misfortune upon me? Why has God afflicted me with this? I was the son of a preacher man, right? I made profession of faith when I was in third grade. I was a good Christian kid. I didn't take the Lord's name in vain. I honored my parents. I prayed. What had I done wrong to make God hate me so much that God was going to throw this on me? You see, but even more than that, why wasn't God answering my prayers? Because I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, God, take this from me because I don't know if I can do it anymore. This anxiety, depression thing, it is awful. Take it from me. God, if you love me, take it from me. God, show me you love me by doing this for me. Because after all, when you're a Christian, isn't life supposed to be easier? Because God is on our side, aren't, isn't everything supposed to be smooth sailing? See, the problem I ran into is that the 13-year-old within me couldn't get past himself enough to understand that God's story was bigger than mine. God wasn't afflicting me with this. God wasn't out to get me. I was trying to force God to operate in my plan and in my time. When in actuality... We exist in God's time and are part of His plan. Because the fact of the matter is, when we face hardships, when we face tragedy, we become so self-absorbed, which is understandable, but we get blinded to the truth that from God's greater plan come small ways in which He is working together all things to work His plan of redemption out. So let's jump back into the story then where we left off with Ruth and Naomi and see this play out. Ruth and Naomi need food. Okay, so they get back to Bethlehem, they need food. So Ruth sends, or sorry, Naomi sends Ruth out to go to a field after it's been harvested. So she's out there gathering grain. It just so happens that this field belongs to a man by the name of Boaz. Boaz just so happens to be a relative of Naomi. And Naomi hears the story about Ruth. He hears how loyal she's been. Boaz is actually referred to in the Bible as a man of noble character. So Boaz makes arrangements for Ruth to go into the field afterwards and gather the excess grain. And he does this, and in doing so, he actually is fulfilling one of the covenants of the Torah that says to care for the poor and the immigrants. Boaz also prays that God rewards... Sorry. Boaz also prays that God rewards Ruth for her boldness. 
So Ruth returns home and tells Naomi what's happened. And Naomi is ecstatic. She says, Boaz is our family redeemer. And now this family redeemer concept is a big thing in Israel because what happened is if a man of Israel died and he had children or a wife or land, it was the job of the family redeemer to come alongside, to marry that widow, to buy up their property and to support and provide and to care for the family. So Naomi has hope again now. She's gone from being filled to completely empty. Now there's a glimmer of hope. She thinks maybe there's a future for her family after all. So Naomi and Ruth make up a plan for Boaz to notice Ruth. Now up until this point, Ruth has been dressing as a widow. So very muted colors, stuff like that, right? But they decide, no, 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 you're going to stop that. and You're going to start dressing as a person who's available to be married. And we're going to get Boaz to notice you. So what happens is Boaz goes out to a field and meets, flip that, Ruth goes out to a field, meets Boaz and expresses her desire for him to redeem her family and to marry her. Boaz is once again amazed at the loyalty and boldness of Ruth and he calls her a woman of noble character. Boaz tells Ruth, however, that there's actually another member in their family that's closer in relation to Naomi. So that person would technically be the family redeemer. He encourages Ruth to stay for the night, sleep, get some rest, and in the morning, he will go find that relative and they'll get this whole thing figured out. So the next morning, Ruth wakes up, goes back home to Naomi, tells her what's going on. Boaz, meanwhile, goes and finds the relative, goes to the city gate, finds 10 elders, and explains the situation of Ruth and Naomi to the elders. Now, this relative actually declines to take up the mantle as the family redeemer because Ruth is a foreigner. She's a Moabite. That hope that Naomi had, nah. But Boaz remains loyal. Boaz remains true to who he is as a man of noble character. And he says to her, as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem your family. So he does it. He keeps his word, remains loyal to Naomi's family by marrying Boaz, by taking up all the family property, by caring for the family. So we have Boaz's loyalty to Naomi's family working in concert with Ruth's loyalty to Naomi. Now, the story concludes as we learn that Ruth and Boaz give birth to a son. And now what's happened is that the tragedy and loss that Naomi had faced and suffered through has been replaced by the joy, the hope, the excitement of new life. Do you see how God was at work in all of this? Every single step of this story, no matter how hard Naomi tried to push God away, tried to push other people away, God was there every single step of the way, working his plan of redemption through people. Naomi's tragedy led her to think that God was punishing her, but in all actuality, the whole story is about God's mission to restore her and her family. He does this through Ruth, the loyalty she shows, the faithfulness she shows. He does this through Boaz, a farmer who's generous and loyal. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. You see, when we allow the story to be about ourselves, when we allow the story to feature us, when we try to fit God into our timeline, we lose sight of the fact that we are living on God's time. 
the 13-year-old within me couldn't get past that fact. I missed the fact that God wasn't out to get me. God didn't hate me. God wasn't afflicting me. God was preparing me to be able to stand in situations like this and talk about anxiety and depression in a healthy way. God was preparing me to walk through tragedy, through a brother with a diagnosis of cancer, through all of these things and say, God's got it. I don't know everything, okay? But I do know one thing. God has got it. So if you find yourself this morning in the midst of tragedy, if you find yourself this morning in the midst of chaos, if you find yourself in a situation where you feel like, God, why are you doing this to me? Trust in the knowledge that God has it. And he is working behind the scenes to bring about redemption in your life and in his kingdom here on earth. Now, do you remember the very last part of the book of Judges when it said Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit? Everybody remember this part? Okay. So, the end of the book shows how Ruth and Boaz gave birth to a son named Obed. And at the very end of the book of Judges, it presents a genealogy. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. King David, of whom Jesus Christ came from that family line. You see, God's redemptive plan was already at work. God's plan for redemption was already taking place way, way, way before we even understood it because we can see here how God used a situation like Naomi was in to bring about redemption and restoration. And friends, that's what Jesus Christ offers us. God loves you so much, he sent his son to die for you, to rise from the dead, to ascend to heaven and give us the opportunity for eternal life because that's who God is. And what better way to celebrate that gift, that hope, that redemption than by celebrating communion together this morning. Because communion is a threefold meal. It's a meal where we think about the past remembrance, the present communion, and the future hope. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, living, dying on the cross, descending, ascending back to heaven. We commune with him currently where we understand that we are sharing a meal with our Lord and Savior, that it is He who sustains us. It is He who encourages us. It is He that brings us through things. And we think to the future hope when we will once again dine with our Lord and Savior in heaven. That's what communion is. It's an invitation, invitation to bring it all to the table and give it to God. So in the name of Jesus Christ, I invite anyone who is in need of redemption. Anyone who is in need of hope. Anyone who declares Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Please come and partake with us this morning. Let's pray. Father, send your Holy Spirit upon us, we pray. That the bread which we break and the cup which we bless may be to us the communion of the body and the blood of Christ. Father, grant that being joined together in you, may we attain the unity of the faith and grow up in all things into our Christ, our Lord. Father, and as this grain has been gathered from many fields into one loaf and these grapes have been gathered from many hills into one cup, 
Father, we ask that your whole church may soon be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. We love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And when he broke it, he gave thanks, saying, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. And at the same time, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which has been poured out for you. When you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And we're going to partake in rose this morning together. So we'll pass out the bread, then hold on to it, and we invite you to, until we invite you to partake together. Come, for all things are now ready.